All right, thank you, Sam, and for all of the elders and all the hard work that they're putting in um, during this transition. If you will uh, turn with me to Psalm chapter 63, Psalm 63, as we continue our series um, in the summer of Psalms, as we are calling it. Uh, as I've mentioned, the Psalms uh, serve a unique, uh, unique place in the Bible. They're a unique uh, literary genre. Uh, they serve as a prayer guide. Uh, they serve as a, a, a hymnal, if you will. They are songs. They also, therefore, uh, complete what basically God has given to us as a guide for worship. And that uh, guide for worship engages both our, our minds and our hearts, at least it ought to, our thoughts and our emotions. Sometimes in our circles, we uh, reduce... Uh, <laughs> We reduce church and the worship of God to an intellectual enterprise, uh, but it really ought to be more than that. Um, it ought to engage our hearts, too, and the Psalms help us to that end. They give words to our emotions. Uh, today, we are looking at the words that it gives to our desire, um, and basically, specifically, our deepest desire for God, for communion with our Maker. Much has been said across the span of Christian worship about the importance of properly ordered desires. Most recently, James K.A. Smith's works, Desiring the Kingdom and, and You Are What You Love. Back when, in the day when I was becoming a Christian, it was John Piper's work, Desiring God. Anyone uh, read that? That was huge, hugely trans transformational in my young Christian life. Uh, but it didn't start there. He got these ideas from C.S. Lewis and the Four Loves, and, and he got those ideas from Samuel Rutherford, who got his ideas from Martin Luther, who got his ideas from Augustine, who got his ideas from Jesus. I think specifically of Jesus and, and his talking about desire to the woman at the well in John 4. That's probably the best known place where Jesus really pushes in to properly ordered desires. Uh, uh, after whom or what do you thirst? And Jesus actually even goes further back. Got some of those desires from King David in Psalm 63. So let's turn our minds and our hearts now to this great psalm. Nate. Psalm 63. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those 
who seek to destroy my life shall go down in the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of the liars will be stopped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. About a week and a half ago, uh, uh, we, our staff team got a text from Megan, uh, who, had lo- <laughs> who had locked, I'm sorry, uh, who had locked her keys in the car. And she ended up that uh, text thread by saying, yeah, I'm really winning at life today. And it just brought to mind that we all want to win at life. That day for Megan, I think that meant she just wanted something to work the way it's supposed to work. Ever been there? Or maybe she just wanted a, a, a piece of a piece of God in that, a peace of mind in the midst of her chaotic day where nothing seemed to be working. Maybe that's what winning at life means to you. Maybe winning at life uh, means having a, a great sense of adventure, a great life of adventure, doing adventurous things with your life, going on uh, exotic vacations. Maybe winning at life means accomplishing big goals, achieving a, a level of success, or maybe it just means having a family. Maybe that's what it means to win at life. We thirst after these things because we want to win at life, don't we? We want to win at life. We want a good one-loss record when it comes to our life, ultimately because it's our one-loss record that makes up so much of how we perceive ourselves, so much of our identity, who we are, right? That's why we just post our wins on social media. That's why we invest in a good education so that we can have a winning career. And sometimes that's why we're afraid of commitment because we want to make sure that other person will add to our winning record, our winning identity. We want to be winners. And our identity depends upon a winning record. We can all say that King David was a winner, right? I mean, historically and biblically, we would all say that really King David was a winner. He won at life, but not, brothers and sisters, because he desired and achieved his goals or um, was a great snowboarder or something like that, but chiefly because he desired and had God. Who was David? When you think of King David, what do you think of? What was at the core of his identity? He was good with a slingshot. We know that. He was a good leader, right? He had lots of accomplishments and accumulations in this life. He had plenty of wins in life by cultural standards. But he also had big losses too, didn't he? He was an adulterer, a murderer. Big losses as well. But the Bible, brothers and sisters, doesn't measure um, us by cultural wins and losses, by our cultural win-loss record, by our achievements or accumulations. Do you know how the Bible speaks of David? Do you know how David is introduced even in the Bible? It goes back to 1 Samuel 15. Before he even comes on the scene, Samuel is talking to King Saul, and he is saying, (coughs) we're going to replace you, Saul, 
and we're going to replace you with, what did he say? A man after God's own heart. And then that phrase is used to describe David multiple times from there on. He was a man after God's own heart. That's what was at the core of what the Bible says was David's identity. He was a man after God's own heart. What if that was said about you? What if that was printed on your tombstone? I think that all those who would pass by would say, yeah, at least if they were believers, they would say, yeah, he won at life. He was a winner. She was a winner. A man or a woman after God's own heart. And yet, I think for most of us, that's probably not how we would describe ourselves, at least, right? Um, Verse 1 is the key to understanding why David is the man after God's own heart. Um, But when we read it, I think, at least for me, I struggle with it. I struggle with appropriating David's desire to myself. Maybe you do too. Oh God, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. Yeah, that's not really me most of the time. And maybe it's not you either. How many, let me ask this. How many of you all have stood in line uh, at the sanctuary of barbecue known as Franklin's Barbecue here in town? Um, let's raise them high. Come on. Uh, yeah. You've done it. You've stood in line. I did it too, y'all. How long did it take you? Anyone? Three and a half hours? Five hours. It took me four hours. And I will say, I kept asking myself, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? I will tell you what my answer was is because I want it. And even more, I wanted the t-shirt that I bought with it to tell everybody that I stood in line at Franklin's. I think we should get grace and peace t-shirts. Because my point is this. How many of us would stand in line for four hours to enter the sanctuary of God? Um, our appetites, our thirst for him are often very weak compared to the quote-unquote gods of the culture. Why? Well, there are two little tricks, I think, that are hinted at here in Psalm 63 um, that the devil uses to, uh, to weaken our desires for God and strengthen our desires for the gods of the culture. Uh, He wants to keep us, first of all, he wants to keep us obsessed with obtaining those cultural wins, obsessed with accomplishments and accumulations. His mention of fat, David's mention of fat and rich food would have really stood out to people as a cultural marker of someone who was a winner. Uh, You you couldn't find fat and rich food at McDonald's on every street corner in, in ancient Israel. It was a complete luxury, a complete foreign luxury. David is drawing that image into our mind. Um, For us, those cultural markers of winning um, 
might be fat or rich food, or it might be the right degree, or the right career, or the right spouse, or the right crowd, or the right picket fence, right? Um, maybe those cultural markers of winning in life are, are the, the little cute little stickers on the back of the car, right? No, no offense if you have one, but you know, with the mommy and the daddy and the little kids and the little dog and the cat. Maybe, maybe that's saying, hey, I'm winning in life, right? Or maybe it's a 26.2 sticker. Uh, some of y'all have those. That's amazing to me. Some of y'all have run 26.2 miles in one time. Some of you have run like 200 miles or whatever it is. Crazy, crazy. I wanted one of those stickers, those 26.2. I will tell you, I wanted one. Um, and so several years ago, I, uh, I thought, man, I, I, can I do it? Can I run 26.2 miles? Do I look like I could run 26.2 miles? Um, well, I decided I would sort of lower my expectations a little bit, and I would go for the 13.1 sticker. That's the half marathon. And so I trained, and I, I ran in that half marathon, and I, I finished. I can say that. But literally, I came in third to last in the whole race. Literally. Literally, people, the, the, the officials were like, come on already. We've got to stop the clock. Let's go, let's go. Only my wife and, and two daughters were at the finish line cheering me on. But I was like, yeah, that took me forever. And I was kind of ashamed, honestly, even though I finished it. I wanted a cultural win. I wanted that 13.1 sticker on the back of my car. Um, but I didn't get it because I came in third to last. It wasn't technically a loss, though, I can say that, but it was certainly not a win. The devil wants to urge us towards those accomplishments and accumulations. I want, you want, we want to win in life, and at the devil's urging, we believe that those accomplishments and accumulations are how we ought to measure that winning life, right? And how we ought to evaluate our identity in light of that. At the devil's urging, we give cultural God so much power and glory, don't we? To make us winners. The devil convinces us that we can manufacture our own sanctuary where we can be satisfied in ourselves and those accomplishments and accumulations. But it's a lie. It's a false sanctuary. In fact, it's not a sanctuary at all, is it? It's stressful. The second thing the devil does is he keeps us obsessed with what might, might make us lose in life and therefore be losers. Our fears of failure, our fears of rep losing our reputation, our fears of losing our security. And he goes at those fears to us, brothers and sisters, listen, when we're most vulnerable, doesn't he? When we are most vulnerable, in verse 6, uh, when David talks about turning to God in his bed or in the watches of the night, um, that is a very present reality in the life of David. Now, David is out in the wilderness. Most scholars believe that this happened at the time of 2 Samuel 15, when David was running away from his son, Absalom, who had formed a coup against David. And David and his 
his guard, his personal guard, were out in the wilderness running away, um, and they were outnumbered by Absalom and waiting for battle. And so the most vulnerable time in battle is when? In the watches of the night, when the guards are changing watches. And so that's a very present uh, reality to David. He's saying, during those most vulnerable times, that's when I what? I turn to you. But that's also the time when the devil whispers those fears into our minds and hearts too, right? How many of you have woken up at 2 in the morning with fears of cultural losses in your mind? Fears of being like, oh my goodness, like <clears throat> staring at the clock to wait for the time that you can make a phone call at a decent hour to manage the conflict, to manage the situation, to manage your losses, right? Or firing off a 2 a.m. email <laughs> or, or fixing a pot of coffee and say, well, I'm up anyway. I'm going to organize my calendar. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. I'm going to work. I'm going to do whatever I need to do. I'm going to fret and, and strain and, and manage and, and, and all of that control so that I don't have the loss. It's the devil's doing. All to drive us back towards appeasing the cultural gods. He wants to give our fears power and glory too, doesn't he? And they do have so much power and glory in our lives. But what if we didn't listen to the devil? What if we didn't listen to those lies and instead listened to God's truth? What if we did like David did and turned to him in the watches of the night? earnestly seeking him instead of our cultural God. What David says the result would be, remarkably, is not only would we win in life, but it would be better than life. That's an incredible statement. Verse 3. How does he do it? There are lots of commands in the Psalms, but by far the most prevalent is the call to remember. David says we must remember specifically what we find in the true sanctuary of God, verse 2. Here he finds the soul-satisfying truth, not the lies, but the truth about God him himself. Four things, uh, quick bullet points. Don't worry, I'm not going to keep you here all day. Four quick bullet points, like bullets um, in, in a, the chamber of a revolver. And I'll leave two for you. Uh, to take home with you, hopefully to kill a couple of cultural gods on the way home with those bullets, all right? But four things, rapid fire, <coughs> number one, bullet number one. What does David remind himself of in the midst of his fears, in the midst of his longings, in the midst of his desires? Only that God has power and glory. Verse two. Only God has power and glory glory. He remembers beholding his power and glory. Uh, why do we give so much power and glory to the weak gods of our culture, brothers and sisters? Why do we do it? Right? Why do we do it? We give uh, so much power to those who do not deserve it. And only God should. Uh, Mac's dad um, is a, a, a wonderful Western artist and he posted about a week and a half ago a post 
that really exemplified this well. He said he was reminded of by a pastor, his pastor, um, quote, not to be confounded by the faces or opinions of the masses, but to be transformed by the love and mission of his master. It's way better, he continued, than listening to the voices that say I suck. Amen? Yes, yes, it's the master's voice that matters, not the voices of the culture, not the voices of the culture. Only he ought to have that power and glory, and yet so often the voices of the culture, uh, those cultural gods, are deafening. They scream for achievement and accumulation, and we obey, but not David. He'll give power to the one the only one to whom it belongs, and so should we. That's bullet number one. Bullet number two, only God has steadfast love, verse three. David is remembering the Hebrew, the very well-known, very entrenched Hebrew concept of chesed. Do you like that little, you gotta say it with a guttural or it doesn't doesn't actually count. Chesed, come on, say it with me. Chesed, no, come on. Chesed, no more guttural. Chesed. That is translated almost always as, it's translated here as steadfast love. Steadfast love, but we brush right over it instead of realizing the depth of that concept. It is closely tied to the covenant of God, to the unbreakable promise of God. In visiting with the kings this week, I was talking about that in in terms of this baptism of Hugo, in terms of the unbreakable promise of God to give Hugo his steadfast love. His love was not going to go anywhere. That promise of God's love now is on Hugo's head for eternity. For eternity. Now, now Hugo must respond to that love, yes, but, but the promise is there. The steadfast love of God is closely, closely um, involved with the covenant, and David is fully aware of that. A love that lasts The cultural gods can't promise that, can they? They're loaded with conditions and requirements for their love, and even then they're fickle, and their love, 100% of the time, dies when you do. Makes me think of that woman at the well in John 4. She thought men would satisfy her desires, her thirst, for a love that lasts, but they all dumped her. Their love was super fickle. And Jesus reminds her, just as David is reminded of here, that God gives living water, lasting thirst, chesed, to those who belong to him. We need to remember that too. That's bullet number two. Number three, we remember, need to remember that God is the victory, victor over our two AM enemies and over the devil himself. As David meditates on God in these vulnerable times of fear, he remembers what? What does he remember? Verses 7 through 11. God's victory. For you have been my help. In the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall 
go down to the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. There's a thought. But the, the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Victory. Victory. Um, David, when, when Absalom is chasing David out to the wilderness, um, the guards, David's guards, first ask him, Hey, before we go out there, should we take the Ark of the Covenant with us? Should we take the Ark of the Covenant with us? And David says, no, 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 leave it right where it should be because we'll be back. We'll be back. The victory is already won. Leave it. The the, the Ark itself was a sign of God's victory, of his deliverance of his people into the wilderness, into his loving care, into his presence. How many of you are Raiders of the Lost Ark fans? Can I get an amen on that one? All right. Y'all aren't that frozen? Yeah. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Amen. Where, brothers and sisters, is the Lost Ark in your lives? Let me just tell you, it's not in the Temple of Doom. And it's not in the Emperor's tomb. It's in Jesus who walked out of the tomb. At 2 a.m., We should meditate on that, that Jesus won the victory. If David was a Baptist, how many of y'all have Baptist backgrounds? I I know there are more of y'all. Okay. If David was a Baptist, he would have sung. I think he might have borrowed some language from this song that we're about to sing, Victory in Jesus, and put it in here. Oh, victory in Jesus. Now, y'all Baptists, please join in with me. Y'all know this by heart, okay? Please, I, I, I'm up here singing all the time by myself. Join in. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory Beneath the cleansing flood, brothers and sisters, Jesus has already put us in the winner's circle. Our wind column is full already. We need to remember that. That's bullet number three. Lastly, bullet number four, David remembers his identity Verse 11, he, he reminds himself that he is the king, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. The devil baits us, y'all. He baits us. He baits us all the time by saying, you're mediocre. You're lame. You're a loser. And then he says... In order for you not to be a mediocre, lame loser, you need to rely on yourself. Come on, pick yourself up by the bootstraps. Get more accomplishments. Get more accumulations. But God stops the mouth of that devil and says, that's a lie. That's not what makes you a king or a queen, brothers and sisters. It's just not. What makes you a king or a queen is the fact that God says it is so. And demonstrates it through the Christ of God. 
He has won the day for you, and he has made you kings and queens of the kingdom. And David is reminding himself of that. He may be out there in in the wilderness. He may feel like the furthest person in the world from being a king. But guess what? He calls himself that because God has made it so. That's who he is in Christ. Keller says uh, it well about this particular verse. Verse 11, he says, This is a joyful, strengthened grounding in who David is. It's the result of dwelling in the true sanctuary of God's truth. Christian too, Christians too, Keller continues, are all kings and priests in Jesus. If David's faith in his kingly calling and identity was well-founded, still more is yours, Christian. Remember that, brothers and sisters. You don't need to grunt and groan and stress and strain over making yourself into someone that you want the world to think you are. You don't need to grunt and groan, and stress, and strain over making yourself into someone that you want the world to think you are. Because brothers and sisters in Christ, you are already a king. You are already a queen. You are already a son. You are already a daughter. So when tempted to chase after those lesser gods with lesser desires for lesser identities, remember that Christ has made you an heir of the kingdom, heir of the promise. That's bullet number four. So lastly, why should we desire after God? Why should we we emulate David here? Why should we seek him as David does? Why should we earnestly seek him? Why should we thirst after him with all of our heart? Why should our flesh faint for him and him only? Because only he has the power and glory, not those weak gods of the culture. Because only he has steadfast love to fill our hearts, not wealth or reputation or family even. Because only he can defend and defeat our enemies and the devil, stop their lying, cheating mouths. And he did it on Easter. And only he can make us kings and queens of the kingdom. Brothers and sisters, only in him can we really win at life. Let me pray. Father, um, help us to believe this is true about you. Help us to lean deeply into your provision. Help us to believe what is true, what you think about us. So much of the time, we're so obsessed in our insecurities and our fears. We give so much power and glory to those things. And so we stress and strain and grunt and groan after accomplishments and accumulations, and we're stressed out. Um, And it is not better than life. It is worse than life. It is a miserable life. Free us from that and help us to know, as David knew, that we are victories in Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.